All right, good morning. Let's go ahead and get started this morning. We uh, have a couple things to point out to you. Just encourage you to pick up a bulletin and stay informed. Keep up to date with what we've got going on. Um, but a couple things I'll just highlight this morning. One is that this Wednesday night, we are finished with our men's and women's Bible study, but we're going to start a new uh, Bible study this Wednesday evening. Uh, it's called Welcome Home. And uh, this is just kind of a, a continuation from our sermon series on fellowship and biblical community. Uh, but we want to continue. We don't want to just do that uh, one sermon series and emphasize it for a while and then let it drop, uh, drop off. So we want to continue to talk about that, continue to work as a church uh, to remind ourselves what it looks like to be friendly. And, and so that'll be on, on Wednesday night at 630. Of course, we've got Next Generation as well uh, for the children during that. Um, and then the other thing is this, uh, we, we need more volunteers. Lord, the Lord has blessed us greatly with a lot of children, and that is a wonderful thing, but it's also, it kind of makes things difficult sometimes. Uh, as those of you who have kids, especially if you have a, a good number of kids like us, you know it's, it's a wonderful thing to have a big family, but it also, it kind of complicates things sometimes. And uh, that's what we got going on with us as, as a church. We've got a lot of kids, which is a wonderful blessing from God, uh, and we're excited about it, but we also struggle to have enough volunteers in the nursery and uh, with children's church on Sunday mornings. So I just encourage all of you, if you're not participating in that, if you're not volunteering, we, we'd like to encourage you to sign up for that. Uh, it's just one of those things, as I've mentioned before, the more volunteers we have, the easier it becomes. And uh, we just want to steward that blessing really well. So this morning, Chelsea, uh, after the service, is going to be out in the foyer, and there's going to be a sign-up sheet. If you're not currently serving uh, in either Children's Church or the nursery, I'd encourage you uh, to sign up with that this morning. So I believe that's it, and at this time, I'll turn it over to Jared. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. I'm glad you're here, and I want to welcome you to worship with us this morning. I know you got to understand that Andrew turned it over to me in a qualified sense. It could be really dangerous if he turned it over to me for the rest of the service. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16 for our call to worship. Just thinking in terms of the invitation, thinking in terms of the need for uh, God to work in bringing salvation. And I would encourage you to be praying for that. Pray that God would work. Pray that the Spirit would move. Pray that the, the preaching and the teaching would bring conviction. And pray that lives would be converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're going to read about uh, one such conversion here in Acts chapter 16. We'll start with verse 25 and read through verse 24. Or sorry, verse 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you, and your, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him 
and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But you notice there the, the simple truth in the middle of this. What must I do to be saved? And the answer to that question, and it's what we pray that many here will do, is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's our call. That is our invitation. It's simple. Repent and believe. Those are the two things that we need to do in order to inherit eternal life. So will you pray with me this morning? Father, as we gather here this morning, we delight as your people to know you. We delight, God, that we don't just know things about you, that we haven't just been pardoned from sin, but we've been made sons and daughters and heirs of the entirety of all the promises and blessings and graces and privileges that are in Christ. And we glory in that, God. We are excited about that. We are thankful for that, God. And yet we're not satisfied with that because we know that we have loved ones and co-workers and, and people in, in the world around us who are still blinded by sin, who are still dead in their trespasses, God, and, and who are headed to hell, quite frankly. And God, that, that brings us uh, an unrest, that brings us an uneasiness, that causes a, um, a concern in our hearts. And God, we, are not, we do not want to be those people who are um, just so caught up in our own selves and so happy with our salvation that we're unaware and unconcerned about the lives of others. God, we want to be the church who reaches into the community evangelistically and missionally, God, to rescue those who perish. We love the lost, God, as you love the lost. We desire their salvation as you desire their salvation. And we cry out to you this morning, O oh God, that you would change hearts, that you would cause people to cry out within themselves, God, what must I do to be saved? And Lord, help them to hear the answer, to believe in your son Jesus Christ and forsake their sins. It is that simple. And God, yet it seems so hard because Satan tempts us to sin. And once we've, once we've sinned, he accuses us and he tells us that there's no way back. There's no hope. God doesn't love you. He can't forgive you. And those things are lies and we call them lies this morning. And we ask, oh God, that you would rescue those who perish. God, it, it takes your work. We proclaim God and that's as far as we can go. You must regenerate hearts today. And we pray that you would do so, God, because you're, you are deserving of the glory of their praises and they, oh God, need rescue from your wrath. And we, we seek that this morning. So God, would you be pleased to save the lost? Would you be pleased, God, to cause unbelievers to become believers, God? Would you be pleased to grow your kingdom? through repentance and faith today, and we ask that you would. Make the preaching effective. Make the, the praying effective, God. Make our lives a savor of life and make our singing, Lord, and our worship here today be glorious in your sight and may it be attractive to those who are looking on. God, save all age groups, all backgrounds from all kinds of sin and make trophies of your glorious grace today, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward at this time. Mark Phillips is... An IMB missionary, one of the missionaries we support through the cooperative program. He's in Niger, Africa, and uh, he is doing a great work of God and boldly preaching the gospel to many tribes and people who have never heard the gospel before. And uh, he's someone that I think we're going to try to work together with and build a, a relationship with. And uh, in fact, I'm going to be 
talking to him through a, a FaceTime call later today, but we need to pray for him this morning and pray specifically that God would bless his, his ministry and the gospel that's going out, and then just pray as well for his safety as they're in a region that's increasingly becoming a, a volatile region uh, with, with persecution and things like that. So let's pray for him this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we are so grateful that you work in the hearts and lives of your people and call them to do things that are really unimaginable. Lord, we, we think of Mark Phillips uh, and the fact that he's from Bowling Green, Kentucky, and that he would leave his family behind and uh, move with his wife and children to uh, a remote place in Africa, all so that he can take the gospel to people who have, who have never heard it. Lord, that's an amazing work that you've done in his life. And uh, we thank you for that. We thank you that you call men and women like him. And Lord, we, we see and recognize that in many ways we fall short because so often we're, we fail to even evangelize in our own neighborhoods. So we ask that you would forgive us of that and that you would help us to be more missionally focused in, in our lives, in our workplaces, with our family members. We also want to pray that you'd help us be a better supporting church uh, for some of these missionaries, Lord, that that we would be the kind of church that sees their needs and, and helps to meet them, uh, that you would help us be a church that, that regularly prays for these brothers and sisters who have given up so much to, to go to places like this. And uh, we just pray for Mark Phillips this morning. Lord, he is a, a missionary who is faithfully preaching the gospel and, Lord, preaching to many people who have never, ever heard the gospel before. It's hard for us to even imagine that. So we just pray that you give him boldness and clarity as he, as he does that. Lord, help him not to be afraid of those who would uh, perhaps intimidate him. Uh, give him clarity that he might be able to preach the gospel in a way that's understandable for the people to whom he's uh, laboring. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would protect his family, give them safety, uh, and just give them peace as they, as they labor in this place. And we pray all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, as we sing that, that is indeed really what so much of the Christian life is. That's our growth in this uh, life is learning to trust Him more and more. The more we trust Him, the more that we become obedient to what He's called us to do. Faith is at the heart of the Christian life. Luke chapter 15, we're continuing our series this morning, an invitation to come to Christ. We've looked at various things, uh, uh, various calls and invitations in Scripture. And this morning we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son, which in my mind is, is one of the most beautiful stories and which so clearly articulates uh, some of the wonderful truths of the gospel. And I just want to invite you this morning uh, if you have never come to Christ, that you might listen to this and uh, that you might hear the invitation. There's no direct invitation in this parable, and yet by virtue of the power of this story, it, it does invite all people to come to Christ. It is a wonderful story. So let's pick up at verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, and he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. 
And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother, his older son, was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this your son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. When we read this parable, we we need to understand that it comes in in a context here. Uh, It comes in the context of Jesus' sort of battle with or dispute with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious leaders and they're really the main protagonists throughout the Gospels. They, They hated Jesus because of the fame that Jesus seemed to be gaining and because His teaching in so many ways, was a criticism of their own self-righteousness. They put on airs of being spiritual, of being religious and holy, but they really were wicked people. Jesus in one place said that they were like whitewashed tombs. And uh, they were beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. They They were like a cup that has been thoroughly washed on the outside, but the inside is is full of nastiness. And so Jesus constantly criticized their self-righteousness. You see, Jesus saw through their false pretenses and spoke with candor toward their evil uh, and their true condition. In Luke 16, in, in one place where Jesus was teaching about money and the, the Pharisees heard his teaching concerning money and they sort of scoffed at it. And it says this in Luke 16, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. 
That was the problem with the Pharisees. You, you see, the problem was that they acted righteous, but they were not truly righteous. That's, that's the problem always when it comes to self-righteousness. We put on airs of being something that we're not. And as self-righteous people always do, the Pharisees tried to prop up their own righteousness uh, by comparing themselves to the worst of sinners, the most notorious sinners. He's, he told a parable, and we referenced this a couple of weeks ago, of the Pharisee who went in the, into the temple to pray. And what did that Pharisee pray? I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I, I thank you that I'm especially not like this tax collector who's a miserable sinner. I thank you that I'm not like him. You see, that's what self-righteous people do. That's why they're so condescending. They have to, they're propping up and building up this uh, false pretense of their own righteousness. And so in order to do that, they've got to compare themselves to others. And so they, they make others the target of uh, their, their self-righteous look. Because of this attitude, the Pharisees thought that any truly righteous person would distance themselves from sinners. If, if you're righteous, you do not associate with sinners. You don't have relationships with people who are notoriously sinful. And it was at precisely this point that Jesus rubbed the Pharisees so wrong because Jesus came on the scene and He would eat with prostitutes. He, he would go into the home of notorious sinners like Zacchaeus who was a, a traitor and, and who was someone who had been dishonest in his work, who had, who had sided with the Romans and, and had uh, stolen money from his own countrymen. And the fact that Jesus would go to Zacchaeus' house and eat with him or, or, or others, or that a prostitute would come and wash his feet, that was just for them, that was beyond the pale. If this man was righteous, he would not associate with these people because we're righteous and we distance ourselves from these kinds of, of sinners. This accusation came up over and over again in, in the Gospels, specifically Luke. He mentions it. Uh, a couple different times in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, it says this, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' response to them on that occasion was that it was those who were sick who needed a physician, not those who are well. He said, I have not come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That should have been enough for them, but it was not. They continued to level this accusation, and that's actually the context in which Jesus gives this parable in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And then verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And eating, I, I failed to mention that, but eating with somebody was... Uh, more than just uh, what it is in our day. Uh, you might eat with somebody that doesn't really associate with you, associate you with them uh, to the degree that it did in New Testament times. To eat some, with somebody, to have meal signified a, a, a fellowship and a closeness, a relationship was there. Was there. And uh, so that's their, their criticism. So in answer of, of that, Jesus gives actually three parables to, to highlight the fact what he already said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And, and these parables highlight the fact that God 
rather than distancing himself from sinners, actually delights in saving sinners who repent. Not only does he not keep himself away from them, but when sinners come to them to come to him, he rejoices. And so he told a parable first in verses three through seven about a man who lost one sheep and the shepherd went out and found that one sheep. And once he found that one sheep, he brought him back and he called his friends and celebrated the fact that this sheep that had been lost was now found. And so in verse seven, we see that Jesus says this just so just like that shepherd celebrated when he found his sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus is being a little facetious there because what he wants them to understand is that we all need repentance. But there's rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. He tells a second parable of a, of a woman who lost a silver coin and she turns her house upside down to find that coin and she finally finds it and she calls all of her friends together and ce- again, she celebrates the fact that this thing of value that had been lost is now found. And so in verse 10, we see the refrain again. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now... This third parable, the the parable of the prodigal son, we've seen a lost sheep that was found, a lost coin that was found, and now a lost son who was found. Now this parable, this last parable, uh, has the added feature of not only the, the fact that the father celebrates, that God celebrates when a sinner repents, uh, but it has the added feature of kind of being a word of, uh, of rebuke to the Pharisees because we see that the, the thing that's highlighted in this parable, and we're actually going to look at this, Lord willing, next week, it, it's actually about the older brother who doesn't want to celebrate when the son returns. We'll look at that next week, but this week we want to focus on the prodigal and see the stunning grace that is displayed by God in his offer to freely and abundantly pardon even the worst of sinners. The main point of this passage is this. No matter how far you've gone in your life of rebellion, if you will humbly return from the foolishness of your sin, your loving Heavenly Father will be waiting with anticipation to welcome you home with great celebration. So let's unpack that this morning. The first thing that we see in this parable is the shame of the Son. The shame of of the son. Uh, Jesus was a master storyteller. And in this parable, one of the things that you see is that every detail here of this story matters. Uh, Every detail that he mentions is meant to highlight something. And, And Jesus so often kind of speaks in hyperbole. And he does that in this parable because every detail of this parable is meant to just show you how wicked and how shameful the actions of this son are. His his sin against the Father is disgraceful. It's stupid. It is a dead end. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. And I think what Jesus would have us see is that our own actions are very similar to that of the prodigal son. The first thing that we see here is that sin is utterly disgraceful. Sin is utterly disgraceful. To say that this son's actions were a slap in the face of his father would, would be a great understatement. 
Now, this father in, in this story is clearly meant to be betrayed as a good and a loving father. And despite the goodness and the, the love that this father has for his son, the son decides one day that he it no longer wants to have anything to do with his father. He, he wants his inheritance now, and he wants to be out of the family. He wants to be away from his father. The father was evidently very wealthy and Typically in, in this culture, the way that an inheritance would work would be that the older son would get two-thirds and then the younger son would get a third of all the, the fathers, uh, all that the father had. But the key to all of this, right, it, we understand that the way that an inheritance worked then is the way that it still works now. You get that after the father dies. And so it's very presumptuous and foolish of this son to come and say, look, I want this inheritance, but... I don't want to wait till you die. I, I want it now. It's, a, it's the height. The, the son's demand is the height of disrespect. This was, especially in this culture, this was a culture that valued honor, that you were to honor your, your elders. And so the people that are listening and hearing this parable, this is just an unthinkable thing for any son to do. It was extremely presumptuous. But perhaps for the father... The worst part of all of it was that it was just such a cold and unloving thing for him to do. Essentially, he's saying, Dad, I know that you love me. I know that you care for me. You've got this great wealth. You've always provided for me. But I don't want anything to do with you. I, I want out of the family. I, I hate you. I want your stuff, but I, I don't want you. He, he wanted the father's money without the father. He, he wanted the father's goods in order to finance his rebellion against the father. Like, I want to get away from you, but I need your stuff to get away from you. What, what wretched wickedness this is to a father who so obviously loved his son. His words and actions would have been crushing, just absolutely devastating. I don't want anything to do with you. I think we can see that our sin is... is just like that of the, the prodigal. It's a disrespectful, presumptuous, and cold-hearted rejection of our Heavenly Father. We've all done the same thing. God has given us good gifts. He's our loving Heavenly Father. He's created us. He's given us family. He's given us life. He's blessed us in so many ways. And then we take the very blessings that He has given us and we use them to finance our rebellion against Him. God, I want your stuff. I want the things that you give me. I want your blessings that you pour out on me, but I don't want you. I, I especially don't want you if it comes with your demands and with your law and with obedience being tied to it. I don't want to obey you, but I will certainly take the stuff that you give. Sin is taking all the good gifts of our, that our Father has lavished on, upon us and using them to run away from the Lord. Now we see here that the father restrains his actions and, and even that is an act of his act of love and act of patience. So the father says, okay, if this is what you want, you can have it. Now the father was obviously not under any obligation to actually give him his demands. In fact, most people in that day would have thought this boy needs a good smack across the face. He needs to be disowned and shunned from the family and he's certainly not going to get any of his demands. But the father in this case gives the boy what he asked for. Now, I think that's not meant to be seen necessarily as a sort of a permissive father. Instead, I think it's just meant to display the kind of love that this father has for his son. 
It's, it's meant to display His graciousness and His patience toward His Son. The Father has patience and love for the Son even in the height of His rebellion. You see, even, even in that moment that has to be devastating, it has to be crushing, it, it certainly is demeaning to, to the Father. Even in the height of His rebellion, the Father continues to love the Son. And so it is with our Heavenly Father, even in the height of our rebellion, even as we're running away from Him, even as we're taking the good gifts that He has given us and using Him in ways that bring dishonor and disgrace to Him, even in that moment, He continues to love us. Sin is shameful, it's disgraceful, but sin is also stupid. It doesn't consider the consequences. This boy's actions, and again, Jesus is just highlighting these in such a way that it's just, there's no question about it. His actions are absolutely stupid. They are stupid to the core. There's no better word for that. They make no sense. He takes all that he's been given. This is, this is his inheritance, and he runs away to a far country, and he just blows through it with no forethought. What's going to happen? This money's going to run out. And, and yet he just squanders it. Look at verse 13. He squandered it in reckless or loose living. Verse 30, his, his older brother, which I, I take as an accurate estimation of the son's behavior, his older brother says, he's devoured your property with prostitutes. This son has just blown through everything with no forethought, no consideration about what's going to happen in the future. How am I going to provide for myself in the future? I think this too mirrors our sin. Sin brings about a sort of insanity. We, we don't ask ourselves the question, what is this leading to? You know, there's a, a, a passage in the Bible that says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. That's the way sin is. It promises joy. It promises contentment. It looks appealing. And, and it blinds us to the obvious reality that we're heading ultimately directly toward judgment and death. And that's what this son is doing. Sin brings about insanity. The boy's decision seemed right in the moment, even though it was leading him full steam ahead into complete ruin. So too, our sin is the same. Sin is not only... Uh, stupid, but sin is a dead end. It doesn't deliver the happiness that, is prom that it promises. Here, this son thought that my life will be complete. I will have the life that I want if I can just rid myself of my father and his rules and his family and all of this. And if I could just have this stuff and go off and do what I want to do, live the life that I want to live, if I can do that, then I'll have happiness. Then I'll have joy. But it doesn't doesn't work that way. He thought total unrestricted freedom to pursue pleasure would lead to true happiness. In the end, his pursuit of excess did not provide the lasting joy he thought it would. That which promised freedom brought about actually the grossest kind of bondage. That's the way that your sin is. Maybe some of you are still in your sin right now. You have not return home to the Father. You have not repented. And you're still buying into the lie that this is what's going to bring you joy. I need to not worry about what the Bible says. I don't need to listen to what God says. I don't need to listen to what my parents say or what other brothers and sisters in Christ are trying to tell me. I'm just going to go this way. This is what's going to bring me joy. This is what's going to bring me happiness. If I just do this, my life will be better. 
And uh, you're still buying into that lie, but it is a lie. It will not bring lasting joy. There may be pleasure in it for a moment, uh, but it will not last. The book of Hebrews talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. There is pleasure in sin. Make no mistake about it. There's pleasure in sin, but it is a fleeting pleasure. And that's what this son comes to realize. So when it is all considered, there simply is no defensible explanation for the behavior of the the son. He was debauched and he was dumb. He was wicked and worthless. He was sinful and stupid. And that's the way that we are in our sin as well. But the next thing that we see in this parable is the goodness of God in a famine and the breaking of a prodigal. The son runs out of money as anybody who had any amount of common sense would have told him that that's what's going to happen. But again, he was blinded by his own sin. He ran out of money. But then something else happens in this story in verse 14. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in the land. Now, in the Bible, a famine would typically be an indicator of God's judgment. And so as Jesus is telling this parable to people in his own day, especially the Pharisees, they're like, All right, judgment of God. This is what should happen. The boy is getting what he deserves. God's judgment is falling upon him. This famine is coming. That's exactly what he deserves. But what they failed to see that this was not a divine retribution or divine judgment. Instead, uh, it was a blessing in disguise. It was God bringing about through providence that which would lead the son to an end of himself. You see, sometimes we see God's grace in a famine more than we do in blessing. Had the prodigal simply run out of money and maybe he could have found work and continued to finance his rebellion against the Father, but in this act of divine providence, it it, it is this act of divine providence rather that brings him to the breaking point. Unfortunately, you know, it's the case so often that until a person comes to the very rock bottom, they don't come to their senses. They're not brought to repentance until they have completely exhausted all their efforts, until they have completely run away as far as they can go. It is not until that moment so often. It doesn't have to be that way, but so often that is the case. It's not until that moment until people are ready to reconsider, until they are led to repentance. And it's because of this that the kindest thing God can do for some of you is send a famine. One of God's greatest gifts to us is when he allows providential circumstances to let us come to a complete ruin of ourselves in our sin. And that's what happens to this young boy. Not only does he run out of money, but there is a famine. And not just a famine, but a severe famine. It was so bad uh, that, that this man is essentially left to beg for work. As I mentioned earlier, every one, of it, every one of the details of the story before were meant to show us just how, how wicked his behavior was. Now, every one of the details of the story from this point uh, till the next section uh, is meant to highlight just how low down this son really had come. We see this in, in verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need, verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, to hire himself out means it's more than just that he found a job. This word means to join yourself to someone, 
Uh, it can even mean to like, uh, you know, permanently kind of glue yourself to someone. And it, it probably is indicating here that basically this man's just hanging around trying to get work. He's basically begging for work because there is no work. There's a severe famine. Not only that, he's working for a, a pagan, a Gentile who obviously does not care for him. And so for a Jewish person, this just is, this is just very low down. You've become a servant, not only a servant, but a servant to a pagan Gentile. And then the, this man sends him into the, into the field to feed the pigs. Now, this is about as bad as it can get in the mind of a Jewish person. Uh, he, this is not just a menial job. This, in the mind of a, a Jewish person, is, is something that's completely unclean. It's vile. Pigs were unclean animals. And so to work and, and be feeding pigs is just about as bad as it can get. But it's, it gets even worse than that. Because this boy is so hungry, this famine is so severe, that he begins to look at the food that the pigs are eating, which these pods that they're feeding them were, were sort of even inedible really to human beings. There was no nutritional value. But he's so hungry, he's evidently starving to death. He's so hungry that if somebody would just let him eat some of the pig food, he would have eaten that. That's how bad he had gotten. But in their eyes, these people cared so little for him that they're willing to let him starve to death. They, they care nothing about him. Now, presumably when he's got all his daddy's money and he's throwing parties and having prostitutes around, I'm sure there were plenty of people who seemed to care for him at that moment. But at this moment, no one cares for him. No one, it says, gave him anything in verse 16. But it's in this moment then that he came to himself, it says. You see that in verse 17. But when... He came to himself. You see, God brought him through these providential circumstances. He brought him to an end of himself. He brought him to complete ruin in his sin. And that was actually an act of grace. Now, this expression that he came to himself, I think this is meant to indicate that the son uh, has a, a, a thought of repentance, that his mind and his heart, his soul is changed. Uh, repentance is, remember verses 7 and verse 10, repentant sinners, that is the theme. Uh, and so evidently, this, this son has had uh, a moment of repentance. His heart and mind have been changed. He's a model of repentance. Before this moment, he loved his sin and hated his father. But when he came to himself, now he hated his sin and loved his father. Before he ran away from his father and into his sin, but when he came to himself, he ran away from his sin and into the arms of his father. And that's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. It's a, it's a change of heart. It's a change of soul that, that turns away from sin and turns to the Lord. And that's exactly what's going on in this boy's life. He changed his mind and came to the realization of, of his dire condition. Verse 17, he says, I perish with with hunger john MacArthur said this he says here i am convinced is where true repentance always begins with an accurate assessment of one's own condition this utterly horrific condition brought about through god's providence had finally slapped this boy back into reality he was at, he was finally made to realize the desperate foolishness the brokenness the emptiness the vanity of his life 
and his actions. But not only did he come to realize his dire condition, he came to realize the sinfulness of his behavior. In verse 18, he's, he's rehearsing what he's going to say to his father. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He recognized not only that he had gotten himself into a scrape, not only that there were problems that he needed help with, not only the direness of his condition, but he, he recognized the sinfulness of his actions. And you see, that's a, that makes all the difference in the world when it comes to repentance. There are a lot of people who will cry and wail and pray when things are going bad, when they lose their job, when there's some kind of uh, ailment or illness that comes into their life. But the moment those, the moment those uh, circumstances are removed, they're right back in their sin. They never truly fundamentally saw what they were doing as wrong. They only saw the consequences and they wanted relief from the consequences of their action. But this, this boy is not like that. He comes to realize, I have sinned. How foolish I was. How stupid my actions were. How sinful I was. Not only to my Father, but before heaven. I've sinned against heaven, against God, and against my father. Have you ever come to a realization of the sinfulness of your behavior? Not that, oh, my behavior got me into trouble, so I'm going to try to do something different. But, but have you ever come to really see the vileness, the insanity, the sinfulness of your actions? That's true repentance. He came to an understanding as well that he deserved nothing from his father. In verse 19, again, as he's rehearsing, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And guess what? He's right in that assessment. Everyone in his day would have been nodding their head. You're absolutely right. To act so vilely, to act so hatefully toward your father who had been nothing but good and loving toward you, to act that way, you absolutely are not worthy to be called his son. And so it is when we come to the Lord, we must realize that we are not worthy of the least of God's blessings. We're not worthy of His grace. We're not worthy of forgiveness. We are not worthy of salvation. He came to that understanding as well. He also came to realize that his only hope was his father. For a moment, he, he tried to come up with some kind of plan that would alter his situation. So he thought, well, I'll get a job, I'll work, and I'll be able to continue living the way that I want to live, and I'll be able to provide for myself. But this famine, this severe famine, got, brought him to a complete end of himself to where he realized, my only hope is my Father. So too, when we come to the Lord for salvation, we must come recognizing that He is our only hope. Works will not do it. Our, our good deeds will not earn us anything. We must come to the recognition that my only hope for salvation is the grace and the mercy of the Heavenly Father. But he also remembered something else. And this is wonderful. He remembered the gracious character of his Father. Look at verse 17 again. He, re he came to himself. And the first thing that happens when he comes to himself What's the first thing that he thinks about? Remember dad. Re remember my father. Remember how good he is. He's so good that he even provides an abundance to his servants. Even his servants have more than enough to eat. My father is a good father. And I know that if I go back to him, there, there's no thought 
that if I go back to my Father, He won't welcome me, that he, he won't receive me, that He won't have me. I know the gracious character of my Father. And it is that that should lead us to come to the Lord. Listen, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. It doesn't matter what other religious people think about it. It doesn't matter how far you've gone in your sin. If you will repent and come to the Lord, our Father is a gracious Father. And He will forgive you. He remembered the gracious character of his father most in that culture wouldn't even think of giving his son a second chance but this is what MacArthur says in his book which I would highly recommend uh, on on the prodigal son he says this but the prodigal knew his father better than that he seems to have little doubt a little fear that his father would have be, would be vengeful toward him he knew his father would be merciful even if he had never consciously thought about it before and now, left with no other alternative, he was finally ready to go back home. Listen, God is good. One of the passages that is most often recited in, in the Old Testament is Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him, that is before Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen, this is one of the preeminent chief characteristics of God our Father is that He is loving, that He is gracious, that He is slow to anger. The first impulse of the Father is forgiveness. You know, my first impulse is going to be, just like especially the people in Jesus' day, my first impulse is going to be, look, you, buddy, you got to prove it. you got to show that you're serious. You're going to have to work this. You're going to have to save and repay me for all the money that you blew. And, and you can stay, but you got to, like you said, that's a good idea. Just stay with the servants. But the Father's not that way. Our Father welcomes us in. And that leads us to the next point, the celebratory forgiveness of the, the father. The, the cultural expectation would be that this son has shamed his father and really, if the son wants any kind of restored relationship, he needs to be shamed to hold up the father's honor. This was an honor and shame culture. And we, we understand something of that, although our culture is slightly different. Uh, for most listeners in this parable, the only right response to a son who had acted with the audacity uh, of this son and then would return home would be to deny him of any kind of acceptance. Most would have assumed that the father would be justified if not justified, that maybe he even had an obligation to permanently shun this son forever. Look, you've ruined me. You've wasted a third of my wealth and you've acted so foolishly. You, you were so disrespectful and presumptuous. The father had been utterly shamed by his son and now the only thing to do would be to shame the son. And to do anything else would be unimaginable. Perhaps... In that culture, even the, the most gracious of them might have agreed that he could return, but only as a servant, only till he proved himself, only till he worked off his debt. Again, MacArthur says this, everyone fully understood that if the son were truly repentant, he would need to come crawling back to the father as a beggar. He would have to express his repentance verbally, be severely humiliated and scorned, shoulder all the public shame he had subjected his family to, and do everything he could to make restitution. In that culture where honor and shame meant so much, such things were simply understood. It was the only way to restore the honor of the Father. 
It was the only way for the son to re regain a shred of dignity. If the, if the father simply forgave him, that would bring dishonor upon the father himself. And so that was the expectation. But what was the true uh, response in this story? Well, it, it was quite different from the expectation. It was celebratory forgiveness. Just as Jesus had painted the worst possible situation, and just as he had painted the, the, how low down the sun had get, now in this section, he really goes out of his way to paint just how great the grace and kindness of the Father is. Here, here we see the Father waiting with anticipation. He comes to him. He arose in verse 20 and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, every detail is meant to show us that the, the father here is so gracious. It seems that the father is even looking down the road, perhaps waiting and anticipating and longing for his son to return. He's not, oh, there's, there's my son. He's, he's waiting. I wonder if he had been waiting there before. Maybe every afternoon he, he would go out to the porch and look down the road and think, man, I hope that my son returns. I hope that this is the day. There was an anticipation for the son. And then the next thing that said that he felt compassion. He sees that son and probably for many of us, the first thing we'd be feeling is, oh boy, here he comes crawling back. Boy, I'm going to let him know just how, how wrong he's treated me. But the first inclination, the first response, the sort of gut response of the father to the son is that he has compassion on his son. He sees his son coming and, and there's compassion there and he doesn't even wait for his son to come to him. He gets up and he runs to the son. Everybody's probably watching. Oh boy, this son's got it coming. You believe the nerve of this son as he walks through town coming back to his father. You believe his nerve? He's going to come back now after he's dishonored his father like this? It's unbelievable that he could think he could receive anything from his father. But the father runs out to meet him. And this too, in that culture, would be something that a father wouldn't do. A, a grown man would not run like this. This was not proper. This was not dignified. Especially somebody who was wealthy like this. They didn't run. But he just lays aside all social customs and norms. And he runs out to his son because he loves him. And he embraces him. And he kissed him. He immediately gives him the warmest expression of love. There's, there's not even a split second where he makes the son feel the weight of anticipating, is, is he going to reject me? Is he going to be angry with me? Immediately, he says, he falls on his neck and he kisses him and he expresses his love. We see that he doesn't even allow the son to, to finish his, his whole speech that he's prepared. The son starts, Father, I, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's going to go on and talk about becoming a servant. But, but in verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly. And he lays out this plan. This is what we're going to do. Nonsense with all that servant talk. Nonsense. I'm not even listening to that. My son has returned. We're going to celebrate. And he brings out a robe. He says, bring a, a robe and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Every one of those details has significance. The robe was a very expensive piece of clothing that would have been saved for just the specialist of occasions. Probably was intended for a marriage celebration. It would only be worn on, <clears throat> on special occasions. But he says, bring out a fine robe and put shoes on his feet. You see, the servants, the servants 
that his father had probably weren't wearing shoes. Servants didn't wear shoes. The fact that he was giving him shoes was like, this, you're not, no son of mine is going to be a servant. No son of mine is going to go without shoes. He puts shoes on his feet. And then he does something that is just unthinkable. He puts a ring on his finger. This was likely a signet ring, which, which really came with it the, the authority over the family possessions. The authority uh, over making decisions and selling and having the authority over all that the Father had. To have that ring meant that everything was at the Son's disposal. This meant that He immediately restored the Son. He immediately restored the Son to a full, His full standing as if He were an obedient Son. All that I have, when He puts that ring on His finger, He's saying, look, you're a Son and all that I have is yours. Unbelievable. People in Jesus' day were thinking, this is, this is crazy. Nobody would do that, but that's what God has done for us. Then the father throws a, a lavish party. He kills the fatted calf in verses 23 and 24. And two different times he says, we're going to celebrate. You know, and, and so many families, if something like this happened, it'd be a, let's keep this quiet. Oh, he's returned. We're going to kind of keep him at a distance. But this father says, look, we're welcoming him in. He's a son. He has all that is mine is his. We're going to celebrate. Let's apply this story this morning as we close. I think there's a few application points here. First of all, we need to see that your sin against God this morning, your sin against God is no small thing. It is great. It's part, perhaps far greater than you've ever realized. It, it is shameful. It is stupid. It's an act of rebellion against an all-loving and gracious Father, your sin is great. Your sin, whether you've come to a realization of this or not, your sin is going to lead to destruction. It will lead to destruction. By God's grace, you may come to a realization of that in this life, if He sends a severe famine, if He lets you hit rock bottom. But for some of you, perhaps you will go on unimpeded in your sin. And it will only be on that judgment day when you stand before the Lord that you will come to a realization, my sin is great. I pray that you would understand that before it is too late. I pray that you would understand that this morning. Thirdly, our Father in Heaven delights. He delights. He celebrates when sinners repent. This is the theme of, of the parables. And if you're wondering about uh, how, how would I be accepted? How would I be received? Look, this parable is meant to indicate to, to you no matter what you've done, if you will return to the Lord, if you will turn from your sin and come to Him, He will extend the warmest kind of forgiveness that you can imagine. Not only will He forgive you, but He will adopt you into His family and make you a son. No matter how wicked, wickedly you've acted, no matter how long you've been in your sin, no matter what you've done, if you return from your sin, God the Father will immediately and abundantly forgive all your sin. Why, why would you wait any, any longer? Why, why delay? Come to the Lord this morning. The other thing I think that we see in this parable is that God's forgiveness is clearly an act of sheer grace. It is an act of sheer grace. God's, uh, there, there's nothing that this son really could have done to make up for his behavior, to, to make up for, for his sin. 
The father doesn't even allow for that to be an option. He immediately forgives the son. Look, this morning, there's nothing you can do. Some people fall into that mindset. Well, I got to kind of clean myself up, man. I've really been off into some really bad. I need to wait. I just can't. I can't believe right now. I can't repent right now. I've got to kind of straighten up my life and then I'll come to the Lord. Then I'll start going to church and then I'll get more active in in church and I'll try to do better. Uh, But that's not the gospel. The gospel is come as a sinner. Come as that stinking son that smells like pigs that has just been so disgraceful and shameful to the Father. Come like that and He will receive you. It's an act of sheer grace. Don't, don't wait. Don't try to prepare yourself and make yourself look better for God. Then the other thing I think that we see is that God's forgiveness comes at a great cost. But it's a cost to Him and not to us. The Father in this story would have brought shame upon Himself for acting in this way. For forgiving His Son, not requiring His Son to be shamed. Uh, this would have brought shame on the Father Himself. And that's what God has done. God has taken the shame of our sin upon Himself on the cross. Christ died bearing our guilt and bearing our shame so that the Father can freely and abundantly pardon us. God's forgiveness comes at a cost, but it's a cost to Him, not to us. And then the implication of all of this is that you must come home. Don't stay in the pig pen. Don't stay in your sin. Don't continue in your rebellion. Don't continue with your efforts of trying to provide for yourself in this life of sin. Renounce it all and return to the Father. And if you do that this morning, the Father will freely and abundantly pardon you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you just might draw some who are in their sin. Lord, I pray for some that they're, they're continuing uh, to, to live a life of sin. They're continuing to walk in their sin. They haven't even come to an end of themselves. I pray for some that you would bring, an, bring them to an end of themselves, that you would bring them to ruin in their sin. Not, not out of vengefulness or not because we don't love them, Lord, but, but because it is only through this process that they will come to recognize their need of You, the Father. Lord, I pray that You would draw sinners this morning. I pray that there are some here that might experience for the first time the the forgiveness that You extend, the full and free pardon of, of having all of their sins forgiven. We thank You, Father, for Your grace and for Your love for us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.